We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. All three of them, on separate occasions during that week-long conference, were brought to tears by the appreciation and understanding that was exhibited by the users of their efforts. You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 175, Planetary Postcards, Paul Denode, Talking Washi in Tokyo. Come on in, have a seat. Join the conversation. Well, welcome to The Sill Podcast number 175, a wonderful number to be at. And our guest today on Planetary Postcards, which is a department of the SIL, is washi artisan Paul Denhode, who is speaking to us from Tokyo, Japan. Paul has been fascinated by and involved with the making of handmade Japanese paper since the early 1990s, when he was studying printmaking and drawing, and was introduced to Japanese papermaking during a workshop in Boston. Having had his mind Blown by the beauty and special qualities of Japanese washi, Paul continued along the path of the artisan, working at Kate's Papery in New York City from 1994 to 96, doing graduate studies at the University of Iowa Center for the Book, working at the Japanese Paper Place in Toronto, of which I have many fond memories myself, having worked there, and then going to Japan on a two-year Monbusho scholarship, which was an intense period of study for him. He worked at Oguni Washi in Niigata as a papermaker and helped to organize the World Washi Summit in Toronto in 2008. From 2010 to 2015, Paul was an art and art history instructor at Asia University and since then has been busily involved with numerous semi-finished projects, including translation work, teaching English, taking care of his young daughter, cultivating kozo and other papermaking plants, working in various papermaking and selling capacities, and returning to Toronto to care for an ailing mother. About his sense of the aesthetics of handmade paper, Paul says, quote, I have long been interested in the push and pull between perfection and, well, imperfection. Hand papermaking is an example of this. You're trying to get as close to perfection as you can, sheet after sheet, but since perfection is impossible, you can never get there. However, you can get close. And that's where the satisfaction of making things and making them well comes into play, unquote. And with that, Peter and I would like to welcome Paul Denhode to the SIL podcast. Hello, Paul. Hi, Paul. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. So, Paul, since the planetary postcard department of the SIL is all about getting a snapshot of how life is being lived around the planet, can you give us a kind of a quick snapshot of where you're living right now and what your way of life is about in the incredible metropolis of Tokyo? Sure. So we're living in Mitaka. Tokyo is a megalopolis. It's a bunch of cities all jammed together, one on top of the other, really. And one of those cities is called Mitaka. It's on the west side of Tokyo proper. We can take a train and be into the sort of the downtown area of Tokyo within about 
35, 40 minutes. But where we're living is a little kind of residential area, very quiet, very charming, very nice, and not a lot of amenities as it were. But when you need those amenities, there's another center actually in the other direction, just about uh, 10 or 15 minutes away where you can get pretty much anything you need. So we're really lucky to be where we are. The house that we're living in is the house that my wife's grandfather designed and built about 50 years ago, plus or minus. And uh, it was reformed about three or four years ago. It's very comfortable, very livable, and uh, a good size because it was built so long ago. When it was built, this area was really farmer's fields. There was nothing much else around here. And the other houses and so forth have built up around it. But I know that probably most people, when they imagine a home in Tokyo or, or an apartment, they think of some tiny little space about as big as a shoe closet. We're really lucky in that we've got a, a really nice, good size space to kind of spread out and make our home here. And you were living in Kyoto at one point. Can you talk about the differences between those two cities? Sure. Well, Kyoto is a smaller city, certainly, and it has a much longer history. So they're both modern cities, but Kyoto has a lot more of these temples and shrines and historic buildings and uh, locations sort of tucked in here and there that never got built over in the expansion over time. And it's a, a different vibe, I would say. Kyoto is a little bit more laid back, but at the same time, it's a little bit more exclusionary to strangers, if that's the right word. Tokyo is a lot more inclusive, I would say, whereas Kyotoites are a little bit more protective somehow of their turf and their history and so forth, I think. Speaking about the cities and so on and Japanese culture, Paul, aside from papermaking, what are some of the unique aspects of Japanese culture that you've come to appreciate during your years of living in Japan? And what do you cherish most about living in that culture? Well, I think that the Japanese culture is um, quite homogenous. The population is, I don't know what the number is, but it's a very high percentage of native Japanese. And there's a whole history about that, about how the country was closed for so many years, so many centuries, and only relatively recently opened back up to foreign influence. And then it took in that foreign influence in its own way, kind of hand over fist for a while, hmm. and then did a little bit of a recorrection, so to speak. And uh, now it ends up being this interesting blend of foreign culture and native culture. But I think that the Japanese society and the Japanese sort of system of doing things is just very efficient and safe and convenient, generally speaking. And those are some of the things that I really appreciate about living here. I mean, personal security is a big one that I mention a lot of times when I get a question like this. Of course, bad things happen here. They happen everywhere, but the frequency with which they happen is quite low. And um, I had a friend when I was working in New York, I made a friend who was a Japanese woman and she's now lived in New York as long as, well, longer actually than I've lived in Japan. She's a real New Yorker now. 
and she came to visit me when I was living in Kyoto. And this is probably almost 20 years ago, 18 years ago, maybe. And she stopped through on her way back to her hometown one time. And we went to see uh, one of the famous temples there. And I had a backpack with my stuff in it and my camera and so forth. And at some point when we were just wandering around looking at the artifacts and the, the architecture and so forth, I put my bag down on the ground and kind of walked away to take a picture of something or, or, or I can't remember exactly the details. And she came running up behind me, said, you left your bag, you left your bag, it's going to get stolen, something's going to... And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're not in New York anymore. You don't have to think about that. You don't have to worry about that. My wife would probably disagree with me. She's got her spidey senses tingling or whatever. She's, she's a little bit more worried about things like that. But I think coming from New York or having lived in New York to living in Japan, the difference is really, really knock you over the head kind of noticeable. In what, 20 years, Paul, more that you've been there? Yeah, I came about 25 years ago for a visit. I knew I wanted to come back pretty immediately. And it took me a while to sort of get my stuff together and make it happen, but I did. And that was about when I first came back with the scholarship was about 20 years ago. Yeah. And so what would you say were some of your challenges as a Westerner or a gaijin when you first arrived in Japan? Um, well, a lot of the same things that I think most gaijin go through. And especially in Kyoto, it was a little bit tricky at first to try and find a place to live. I mean, I think a lot of that's kind of washed away to an extent now. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say that. I haven't had to look for a place to live recently. But my impression is that it's a little bit easier these days than it was 20 years ago, or certainly than it was 50 years ago. But as a foreigner, they would say, oh, no, no, we, you can't live here. We, we can't have you in this building. Or they would say, yeah, you can rent it, but the rent is X and X was a 1.5 or two times what they would rent it to a, a native Japanese and things like that. So that was a little bit of a tricky thing at first, but through a, a friend of a friend of a connection, I ended up with a nice place to stay in Kyoto, in the suburbs of Kyoto. That worked out well in the end. Language was a real problem at the beginning and still continues to be a problem, but obviously less so. My spoken Japanese is pretty good. My reading skills are still so-so, I would say. Depends on exactly what I'm reading. So just the communication part of things. I'm a kind of a quiet person, but I do like to communicate. And uh, I found it frustrating for a long time that I couldn't. And still sometimes, even to this day, that I can't really get across what it is that's going on in my head in the way that I want to. Most of the time I'm fine these days, but there are still plenty of instances where I just can't quite find what exactly it is. I have an idea in my head in English and I want to try and get it across in Japanese and there just isn't a correlation there somehow. There isn't a proper corresponding term or phrase or whatever. So that can be frustrating. What about your height? Because I know you're very tall and is that an issue at all? <laughs> well, I mean, not a day goes by even now that somebody doesn't mention my height or when I meet somebody, pretty much the first thing they say is, oh my gosh, you're so tall. <laughs> In Toronto, I was tall, but I wasn't super tall. I wasn't basketball player tall. I'm 6'5". So that has been a thing in that way, but it's also sort of provided some comical backdrops and things. Um, I remember when I went to a temple south of Kyoto one time and there was a group of school kids there 
And I can remember the kids coming up behind me sort of surreptitiously trying to measure how close they were in my height. And I can remember the one kid hiking his belt up, trying to get his belt up to the <laughs> height, the same height as me and stuff. So, it, you know, it can yeah. be, it can be kind of comical, but uh, the other problem with my height is that I tend to hit my head on just about everything because the, the ceilings and the, the beams and the lamps and everything is just hung six or eight inches lower than it would be anywhere else. So I've gotten fairly used to that now. And I know that when I get off the subway, I've got a duck or I'm going to be in trouble. And it's only if I'm drunk or <laughs> if I'm not paying attention somehow. And it happens. It happens maybe once every two or three years. I'll really crack my head on my way out the subway. And all the Japanese on the train will, oh, well, are you okay? You know, they're very good about it. But yeah, that's another issue in terms of my height. But I manage. Well, it's interesting to me to hear you talk about all these things, all these challenges, especially the uh, communication one where the frustration of being able to articulate exactly what's in one's head with a somewhat limited response capability at certain times, which makes it even more interesting to me about you remembering a particular standout moment when you realized that Japanese papermaking was the world you wanted to be in and ultimately dedicated your life to, was there a particular moment? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the initial journey took some time. Originally, I wanted to be an architect. I was convinced I was going to be an architect. If you had asked me at age 15 or 16, there was no question in my mind that's what I was going to do. Mm. That didn't work out. And I went to art school and I was studying printmaking and drawing. And I slowly became sort of more interested in the paper that I was working on than the actual work that I was doing. And I started investigating different kinds of paper and going to the paper shops in Toronto to try and find interesting papers to work on. And I found a book that said you could make paper by hand by yourself in your kitchen or something that just blew my mind and i thought wow that's definitely something i need to try and it took me a while to kind of work my way into it but once i graduated from university i went to boston to take a week-long papermaking intensive class and one day in the week was devoted to japanese papermaking methods and as soon as i really got my hands wet with it. I knew this was something magical and something that I wanted to know more about and to try and find a way to make a part of my life. That was say 92, I would guess. And I made my first visit to Japan in 95. And then I finally came to really come and study around 2001, I think it was, or 2002. So it took me a little while to kind of get there, but I think that moment, I can remember the sort of scene in my head of making those sheets of paper in Boston and knowing that I wanted to go further with it. And you met your partner in Japan too, correct? Yes, that's right. She studied in America, in Oregon, and she studied book arts. A friend of hers was a friend of mine, and so we met through them. Paul, having worked at the Japanese paper place for a number of years, I really came to appreciate the beauty and the qualities of Japanese handmade papers, washi. But there was an element there which I found fascinating, which was that every sheet was different. Every sheet was unique. And there was 
as your statement in my introduction to you said, this whole idea of perfection and imperfection really came to the fore. And the idea of the Japanese concept of wabi-sabi comes to mind. Is there a relationship there to that in papermaking? I do. I do think there is a relationship there. I have to confess that my understanding of wabi-sabi is pretty rudimentary, and I can't remember which one it is. I think it's the wabi, which is the imperfection side of things, and the sabi is somehow old or tinged with dirt is the word that comes to mind, but that's probably not quite the right word. But again, they're closely related in the sense that that's a kind of an imperfection in itself. But I think one of the core sort of tenets of that is this idea that often is used to talk about pottery. And when you look at pottery, there's a thumbprint from the maker or one cup is never going to be quite the same as the other cup because it's got a slight indent here or a little wobble there or something. And all of those aspects, although maybe in a more subtle way, all of those aspects turn over and relate to papermaking as well, I believe. And staying with papermaking, what are some of the characteristics that you've noticed in master papermakers? And are there some qualities that they have in common? Oh, sure. The the individuals, you mean, mm-hmm. the papermakers themselves. Yeah. Well, I think they're all very conscientious. I mean, I hate stereotypes, but I think that generally speaking, they're all very conscientious. They're very kind, extremely hardworking and humble in a certain way. There are a few exceptions. I can think of a couple of papermakers that I've met over the years that were not especially humble or that were not particularly conscientious. But generally speaking, that's been the case. And papermaking is not a profession that you enter into because you think you're going to get rich doing it. Mm -hmm. It's really a labor of love. It's almost impossible to get paid what your labor is actually worth in the end. And uh, Japanese handmade paper is, I think, dramatically underpriced. And yet most people in the world think of it as dramatically overpriced. When you think about the amount of work that goes into it, Mm -hmm. it really is a marvel that it can be sold for 500 yen or even, let's say, five or ten dollars a sheet. For some people, that sounds like an exorbitant price. But when you think about the amount of hand labor that goes into it, it really isn't expensive. Would you say there's a spiritual element to papermaking? I think there is and there isn't. I mean, I think for some people, that's an element of it sort of the papermaker will kind of zone out in a way, almost a kind of a meditation at the papermaking vat and get lost in their thoughts. And sometimes it can be mundane if they're thinking about what they need to do tomorrow or what to feed the kids for dinner tonight or whatever. But other times it can be much more spiritual, I guess. Paper is called kami. The word for paper is kami. And another word, kami, also means God. So paper and God are pronounced the same way. The word for both of those in Japanese is kami. And there's been a lot made of that fact in the literature over the years about how this shows that there's a direct correlation between the gods and paper. Mm -hmm. And certainly there are elements of paper decoration and so forth that are used at Shinto shrines and things, something called the shide. Shiminawa, hanging from the Shiminawa, which is a straw kind of decoration. 
there are elements of that that all tie in together to make it a kind of a spiritual thing. And certainly I have experienced paper and paper making as a spiritual thing when I've been to the, uh, there's a festival that happens in Etizen every year in the spring. And there's a paper making goddess in Etizen. She is enshrined up in the mountains above, well, the hills above the town. And every year the paper makers climb up the mountains with a portable shrine on their shoulders and they bring down this effigy of her into the city and parade her around the city to try and get her to bless the paper makers and allow them to make good paper for another year. And it's a three-day festival every year that they've been having for over a thousand years. It's really quite a spectacle. It's really wonderful. And that's certainly a very spiritual event. Even with that too, Paul, in some ways you might have to say, or you could say that handmade papermaking is still a kind of esoteric vocation, especially in the West, but maybe even in Japan, given the rise of manufactured paper production, etc. I'm wondering, in terms of your upbringing, were there any qualities that your parents inculcated in you that have helped you succeed in some ways in this esoteric vocation of yours? Yeah, I think there might be. I mean, I think that my mother instilled in me a kind of a steadfastness, quiet steadfastness, putting your nose to the grindstone and just keeping at it, keeping at it without complaint, I suppose. And I think that papermaking is really hard work. It's physical labor and not just the papermaking part of it, the preparation of the fiber and the growing of the fiber and the drying of the paper after it's been made. All of the aspects of the papermaking process are quite physical in nature. So you have to be willing to sort of put up with it is not the most poetic way to put it, but you have to be willing to kind of go with it and just work through it. Mm -hmm. I think that that's maybe something that my mother helped imbue me with from an early age, which then later put me in good stead when I came here. And speaking of parenting, this may be a weird question, but every sheet is unique and you've created it. Do you sometimes feel like a parent letting your child go into the world when your paper goes out into the world? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you can carry that metaphor as far as you want to take it, I suppose. But these are your babies, as it were. These are your creations. This is something that you've put your blood and sweat and tears into. And I think that that was one of the, I'm going to make a segue here, but that was one of the remarkable things about the World Washi Summit that was held around, I think it was 2008 in Toronto that I had a hand in organizing it. I had a small hand really in organizing. We brought three papermakers from Japan to Toronto and the papermakers met the artists and the conservators and the people that were using their paper. And generally speaking, there's not a lot of opportunity for papermakers to do that, to meet the people that are actually taking care of their babies, as it were, mm. as they go out into the world. And all three of them on separate occasions during that week-long conference were brought to tears by the appreciation and understanding that was exhibited by the users of their efforts. Wow. Interesting you use the word tears, which is kind of a good segue to what I'm about to ask you. The world's been in tears for the last two years <laughs> dealing with COVID. 
How have the last two years of dealing with COVID impacted you or your papermaking pursuits? Well, they have. I mean, like everyone else, I have not been moving around as much. There are papermaking events that I would have gone to that I didn't go to, or um, I have a friend who I help generally, I go to help with the Kozo harvest. The Kozo is the paper mulberry that the paper is made from, the plant the paper is made from. And I go to help with the harvest just about every year. And I did go last year, but the previous year we called that off just because travel was not really something that was, I mean, I could have done it. We could have made it work probably, but uh, we just decided it was best if I stay in Tokyo. And just to follow up to that question, what would you say has been the Japanese attitude in general toward the government's response to COVID? Has there been much opposition to the mainstream narrative in Japan or have people basically gone along with the authorities and what they've suggested? I would say generally people have gone along with what the government has been saying and towing the company line, so to speak. <laughs> um, that's, that's a kind of a Japanese characteristic, I think. I mean, certainly there's a kind of opposite dynamic happening between America and Japan and Canada, I suppose would be somewhere in the middle, but in America, you're sort of raised to be an individual and to be unique and to seek out your uniqueness and exhibit your uniqueness in any way you can. Whereas in Japan, you're raised to be part of the group and to fit in and to not ruffle feathers or raise a wake or whatever. You're supposed to just kind of, what's the thing about brass tacks getting hammered down? That's a very big one here in Japan. <laughs> mm -hmm. On the upside of all this, what brings you the greatest joy in life? And on the flip side, over this period of time that you've been in Japan and prior to, are there any regrets about the path you've taken? Uh, well, the thing that brings me the most joy, I think, is making things. And it can be just about anything. I mean, I've gotten really into cooking lately. It doesn't have to be an artwork of some kind, but just the idea of bringing disparate ingredients together to make something that is beautiful or enjoyable in some way, appreciable in some way, brings a great deal of satisfaction. And I find that if I can, and it doesn't happen all that often, but if I can make a day or a couple of days to just sit at my desk at my table and make things or be at the vat making sheets of paper, one or the other, I really get lost in time, but in a good way. I feel good about it that I've been able to, again, make some babies to extend that metaphor. In terms of regrets, I don't know. I don't think I'm a kind of a person that has a lot of regrets, but I suppose one might be feeling that I got a kind of a late start here. I wish I had come you know, in my early 20s instead of my early 30s or mid 30s. I had no reason to study Japanese when I was in my teens, but I wish I had done it even as late as when I was in my teens, just because I know that it would have stuck a little bit better probably in my young brain. So in that sense, I feel like my late start in both of those aspects is a kind of regret, but it's not something that I spend a lot of time wallowing over either. Mm -hmm. You've been in this incredible path, really, into the craft of handmade papermaking, into the culture of Japan, into a different world, really. And I'm wondering whether 
you have taken with you a kind of philosophy of life or an attitude towards life that's helped you to kind of get over hurdles, get through challenges, and to make these changes that you've made in your life? Well, again, I would say I'm not really one for sort of sitting down and developing a philosophy of life. So I'm not sure that I have anything really profound to say about that. I saw something It was a little more complicated than this. I saw something recently that really spoke to me and the crux of it was just be nice, just be nice. And that's something that I'm constantly trying to instill in my daughter, my eight-year-old daughter is just be nice. Everybody has their stuff that they're going through and we've all got to kind of get through it one way or another, but there's nothing really to be gained from being mean to each other or being at cross purposes and so forth. So just be nice. Why can't we all just get along? (laughs) Right, right, thank you. I'm totally on board with that. You use the word nice, I use the word kind, but they're synonymous, Mm. same idea. I totally agree with that. Before we wrap up here and I give you the opportunity to tell people about anything that's coming up or websites, contact information, I do have a question that wasn't part of our uh, kind of list here. When you were talking about Japanese culture, I'm sure that there are listeners who understand immediately what you're talking about when you're talking about sort of stereotypical personification of the Japanese people and how they are, their their intelligence, their age, what they've done, these remarkable things on this small island and so on. There's also a side that is expressed that is not necessarily positive, and that is the stresses and suicidal tendencies that are often talked about in the media. What's your take on all that? Wow. Okay. Heavy question. Yeah. I think the work culture here is, well, is broken. Honestly, I think that people work too hard and I think people work too hard in a lot of places, but I think that more people work extra too hard in Japan. And uh, I have friends who regularly work 60 hours a week and stuff. And don't see their kids much, a couple hours on the weekend or whatever. I don't know. Uh, Maybe be nice is more of a philosophy than I really give it credit for. But I think if you're working 60 hours, your boss is not being very nice or the corporation that you're working for is not being very nice. And I think probably you're not being very nice to yourself or to your family. And the other thing that I thought of in terms of a character that was sort of uh, imbued upon me by a parental figure also comes from my mother and that's balance. I'm not suggesting that everybody should lie around and eat bonbons on the couch all day. I think there's very much to be said for working hard, but you've got to find a balance there somewhere. And for everyone, that balance is going to be different. And I understand that for some people, working 60 hours is great. They love it. They're happy to do that. I would question whether they really are happy to do that, but I'll leave it up to them, really. But I think that there's a lot of people in Japan who are working 60 hours a week and don't love it. And the only reason they're doing it is because that's just kind of the ethic here. And there's this thing where you never leave before your boss leaves the office. And so people sit around at work pushing papers across their desk for hours waiting for their boss to go home just so that they can go home. Things like that, which I really think is ridiculous. But... It's just part of the culture. It's just the way things work here. 
We just finished the podcast, uh, TSP 174, which talks exactly about that seduction for sale, which is all about balance, happiness, and contentment, and so on. Mm-hmm. This has been really, really interesting for me. I've had a fascination with Japan for a big part of my life, and my son also visited there in 2011, just before the uh, Fukushima event, and uh, uh-huh. gave me even more enlightenment into the culture and so on. So wrapping up here, though, Harry and I want to give you the opportunity to give out any information to listeners regarding activities that are coming up, website information or contact information in case people want to know more about you or what you do. Okay, sure. That's great. Thank you. I don't have that whole social media thing all together exactly right now. So what I'm doing lately is I'm trying to post more on Instagram about my paper making activity. My Instagram account was more of a personal account for a long time, and I'm transitioning into more of a washy all the time kind of account there. And that's just my name, Paul Denhode. You can find me there. And if you want to reach out and contact me, feel free to DM me. I have no problem with that at all. And uh, I think that's probably the best place for people to find me if they want to know about me. I do have a side project that's called the Snowback Press. And I have a website called snowbackpress.com where I'm selling uh, some laser cut cards. This is really not to do with washi, but if somebody's interested, they can certainly have a look there. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Paul. This has been a pleasure. And it's great to connect with you again after so many years. And all the best to you and to uh, Mackie and to me. Paul, thanks again. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad it worked out. Okay. And take care. Take care. Bye now. Okay. Bye-bye. So, Harry, sayonara. I mean, uh, (laughs) (laughs) the land of the rising sun. I know he's a friend of yours, but uh, (laughs) thanks for introducing me to him. And thanks for the whole idea of this podcast. And on that note, ciao, Harry. Ciao, Peter. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production, available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.